The book of Habakkuk is a lot like life. Uh, Life is full of quandaries, questions uh, for which there seems to be no uh, real answer, at least no satisfying answer. Uh, And one of those quandaries, a quandary that we're going to look at today, is why it is that for some people every road seems to be paved with gold and other people find roadblocks everywhere they turn. Why do some people have it so easy and other people seem to have it so hard? Almost everyone, whether they're a Christian or not, thinks about this question. Perhaps uh, Rod Stewart, some of you know Rod Stewart, maybe he summarized it best for popular culture uh, back in the 1980s uh, when he said or sung this. Some of you who are my generation or a little bit older might find yourself singing along with me today. I've been singing this song this week. Some guys have all the luck. Some guys have all the pain. Some guys get all the breaks. Some guys do nothing but complain. Ooh, no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna continue singing it for you. Some of you know that song, and it's not great art. Um, I will admit that, but it does strike a chord, doesn't it? Someone like that writes a song like that because everyone, even those who aren't believers, think about this question: Why is it that the breaks seem to fall as unevenly as they often do? Why did she get a husband and I didn't get one? Why did he stumble into a windfall and not me? Why do we Americans have water to drink and hospitals at our beck and call and healthy food and people all over the third world don't? Why is that? Why do some guys and some gals seem to get all the breaks? It's a difficult question. It's very difficult even if you're a secular person, even if you have no thoughts about God. Because if you're a secular person, you may consider the question, you may wrestle with it for a time, And eventually you'll be forced to let it go and conclude that there's nothing more than the winds of chance. But it's still a a quandary, isn't it? But it becomes an even more difficult question for us when we factor God into the equation. Because when you factor God into this question, you have to factor in things like purpose and justice. And when you factor in purpose and you factor in justice, it begins to dawn on you that some of the guys who get all the breaks seem to be some of the most rotten guys. You ever notice that? Or at least it seems that way sometimes to those who are on the wrong end of the brakes. Doesn't it seem like the guy who is the most obnoxious and the most dishonest is always the one who's first in line for a promotion? Seems like that sometimes, doesn't it? Especially if you're not that guy. Have you ever wondered why some couples try so hard to have children and are barren and then promiscuous teenagers seem to be able to get pregnant like that? You ever wondered that? A lot of people have. Have you ever wondered why big corporations seem to throw all their money behind gay pride marches instead of behind crisis pregnancy centers or behind starving people in the world? You notice these things and you start to ask yourself, if God is sovereign and if God is just, then why does it seem that some of the most undeserving people have the greenest grass? Why does it seem sometimes like evil is winning? It doesn't seem fair. Why do the wicked prosper? That's the question that Habakkuk poses beginning in verse 12. Why do the wicked prosper? Now you'll recall from the rest of the book that we've studied so far that Habakkuk began with a different question in chapter 1. He began by asking, God, why aren't you doing anything about your people? Your people are straying from you. They're ignoring your law. They've forgotten about you, God. Why don't you do something about this? 
And we saw that last week in verses 1 through 4. You could summarize it again simply by reading verses 3 and 4. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Habakkuk looked around at God's people and he said, there seem to be more wicked people than righteous people. What's going on, God? What is happening? And he didn't get the answer that he quite expected because God's response then in verses 5 through 11 was, Habakkuk, I am doing something about that. I am raising up the dreaded Chaldeans to punish my people, is what God says in verse 6 and following. I am doing something. I'm going to judge you, Habakkuk. And that response then put Habakkuk squarely into the middle of the dilemma that we're dealing with this morning. How can the wicked prosper, God? How can you send the Chaldeans to judge us? Now just imagine for a moment, as we said last week, that God decided to judge the church in America. In so many ways, we've forgotten God, we've forgotten His Word, we've lost our children and so on. Say that God decided to judge the church in America and say He sent a modern-day Habakkuk to come along and tell us that He was going to use Al-Qaeda to do it. What would you think? God said to you, I'm going to raise up Al-Qaeda and they're not just going to, to blow up buildings in New York City. They're going to start coming to America and judging the church specifically. What would you think? Well, you would think what you're going to see Habakkuk thinks. Al-Qaeda? They're worse than we are. How in the world can you give them victory over us? How could you? It doesn't make sense, God. Why do you let the wicked prosper? If you can imagine how you would feel if God said that, then you can imagine what was going through the mind of Habakkuk as we read verses 12 through 17. Read them with me. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? That's his key question. Why, God, are you silent when those who are wicked, the Chaldeans, swallow up us who are more righteous than they? Why do the wicked prosper? Verse 14, Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net, because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? How could you do this, God? How could you do this? And I want you to notice, uh, and it's important that you notice, that Habakkuk is not shaking his fist in God's face here. He's not shaking his fist in God's face, but he's reasoning with God. He's mulling over what God has just told him. The Chaldeans are going to come and they're going to judge you. He's thinking that over in his mind, and he's lining it up with what he sees in the Chaldeans, their wickedness, and he's asking God to make sense of the incongruity. How can it be that you're going to use these people who are more wicked than we are to judge us for our wickedness? And just as an aside, that's the way we must deal with these kinds of questions. It's always, always, always wrong to accuse God. 
always wrong to accuse God. However, there is a place for asking God humbly, God, what I know from your word doesn't seem to lie flush with what I see in the world. And I need you to help me make sense of this. I need you to help me understand what you are doing. And so Habakkuk says to God basically this, you're going to use the Chaldeans to judge your people? I can't get my mind around this, God. I'm going to need your help. I need you to explain this to me. I need some more information. And he proceeds to give God two reasons why it doesn't make sense to him. It's not just that he's upset that he doesn't want to be judged. He understands that they need to be judged. He was the one who was asking God about it in the first place. But what he's doing is he's saying, there are some things that are going on here in what you're saying that don't seem to line up with what I know. Number one is this. God, this doesn't sound like you. This doesn't sound like you. Isn't that what he's saying in verses 12 and 13? The wicked are going to gain the upper hand. The Chaldeans are going to destroy the people of God. That doesn't sound like you, God. After all, verse 12, you are from everlasting. God, you don't change. And since you don't change, how could you now be turning your back on your people? Surely it's not as you say, God. Surely we will not die. And furthermore, he says, you're holy. Verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And since your eyes are too pure to approve evil, God, how could you use those who are evil as the instrument of your judgment? How can you, a holy God, approve of and even make use of wicked people, terrorists? He's asking some pretty hefty questions, isn't he? Those questions still hang heavy in the air 2,600 years later if we're thinking seriously about the justice and righteousness of God and then comparing it with what we see in the world. These questions will carry even more weight if we remember what we said last week, what we saw last week in God's Word, that comparing ourselves with the Judeans of the 7th century, we're just as right for judgment as they are. The church in America is just as right for judgment as these ancient Jewish people were. So these are important questions, because what if God decided to send militant terrorists to judge the churches in America? What if he allowed them to come into our country and begin burning down churches, taking our wives away, forcing our children to convert to another religion. What if God did that? God wouldn't do that, you say. Yes, he would. Read Habakkuk. Yes, he would. God might do that. So we better ask the questions Habakkuk's asking. How can a holy, righteous, good God use evil people like the Chaldeans to do his bidding? That's what Habakkuk's asking. How can this be? This doesn't sound like you, God. And then he moves on to a second line of reasoning. Number one, this doesn't sound like you. Number two, these people are worse than we are. These people are worse than we are. And we would say that as well if we posed the question that we've been posing about our own deserving judgment. Verses 14 through 17, Habakkuk's cry continues like this. God, the Chaldeans are coming in and they're scooping us like shrimp in a dragnet and taking us as their own. And you're telling me that you're behind it all? Is that what you're saying, God? You're telling me you're behind it all? How how can this be? Look at them. They don't praise you at all for their successes. What do they do? In fact, they brag on their own equipment. Our nets are so great. And they congratulate themselves and they sacrifice to their idols and then they continue the slaughter. That's what he says. God, I know that your people aren't what they should be. 
But they're worse than we are. How can this be? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? In a moment, we're going to see if we can discover what God's answers might be to such questions. But before we do, I want you to see in Habakkuk's reasoned response to the Lord in verses 12 and 13 especially, one of the great practical lessons of this book. The prophet serves as an example for us of what to do when we face life's quandaries, whether they be a big nationwide or churchwide quandary like this, or whether it's an individual thing of why are you letting them prosper and leaving me seemingly lying in the dust. He serves as an example of how to appropriately ask the question, why? We said that it's always wrong to shake our fist in God's face, but it's not always wrong to ask God why, and Habakkuk teaches us the way to do it. It's an important lesson to learn, and it's one that some of us haven't yet learned. We haven't learned how to appropriately ask God why. James Boyce, who was a pastor in Philadelphia uh, earlier in this, uh, or at the end of last century, uh, pointed this out, pointed out the fact that we don't often know what to do when we face these questions and we respond wrongly. He says this, When we face problems like this, speaking of Habakkuk, it's important that we follow a proper procedure in dealing with them. When things go wrong, some people tend to withdraw. They drop out of Christian activities, stop going to church, pull back into their spiritual corner, and pout. Others repudiate their past. They conclude that, what, that they must have been wrong about God and renounce all belief in Him. Both, he says, are wrong ways to deal with such problems. I want you to see that Habakkuk didn't either. He didn't just pull away by himself and pout, and he didn't renounce his faith in God. Instead, He went into his closet. It says he went to a rampart. I think it's a symbol that he went somewhere where he could be by himself. He went into his closet. He laid out the details before God that he couldn't make sense of. He posed his questions. And then, verse 1, he waited patiently for God to answer. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. It's a tremendous example for those of us who live in the shadow of the question, why? It's not wrong to ask God why, provided that you're willing to wait patiently for an answer, as Habakkuk did. To keep watch, to see what he will say to you. And provided that you're willing to be corrected, even reproved, if that should be necessary. If you're willing to wait like Habakkuk and be reproved like Habakkuk was willing to be, then you can come to God and you can ask him why. Why is it that what you say in your word doesn't seem to match up with what I see in the world? So just keep Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 1 in mind for those days when the pieces of the jigsaw of your life don't seem to fit together like they're supposed to. When the promises of God's word don't match up with the circumstances that you see in the world. So again, Habakkuk's big question is this. Why do the wicked prosper? How can a holy God let the wicked prosper? Why do some of the most undeserving people have the greenest grass? Why does it seem sometimes like evil is winning? Verse 13, why are you silent, God, when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Now all of us, if we're paying attention to what's going on around us in the world, might well ask the same kinds of questions, both in our personal lives and on the world stage. We might ask them about our country. God, why does it seem like our country is going down the tubes? Why are we so much further away from godliness than we were a hundred years ago? 
Why do the causes of wickedness seeming to be, seem to be winning today in 2007? And the causes of righteousness and the gospel seem to be waning every moment? We need to ask those questions. And if we ask the questions, we need to go to the Bible to see if God has any answers. And in the book of Habakkuk, he does. I think we'll hear three replies from God's lips this morning. So let's keep watch with Habakkuk and see what the Lord will say to us. To the question, why do the wicked seem so often to prosper? The first answer and the main answer is this. Things will not always be this way. God says to Habakkuk, things will not always be the way they are now. Yes, the wicked seem to prosper now, he says to Habakkuk, but it won't always be so. That's the main point behind the rest of chapter 2. And the point is, God is going to judge the Chaldeans for their wickedness. So, he says, it may not seem like it now, Habakkuk, but I will judge them. They will pay for what they're doing to my people. And so certain is the promise that they will pay that in verses 2 and 3 there, God tells Habakkuk to write it down in stone tablets. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. And then beginning in verse 4, he goes on to give the judgment against the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. My judgment, he says, will certainly come, and it certainly did come. About 60 years after Habakkuk wrote these things, Babylon fell as the Persian Empire came through and sacked the city and tore down their empire. It took a long time, but God did do what He said He would do. And that's important to remember. The old preacher in Memphis, R.G. Lee, used to say this, The judgments of God often have leaden heels and travel slowly, but they always have iron fists and crush completely. That's important to remember. Things will not always be the way they are now. And that's the point of verses 2 and 3. God may leave the wicked on a long leash here and now. It may seem like God has forgotten His justice, but things will not always be this way. A day of reckoning is coming. And specifically for the Chaldeans, it was a day of reckoning on their empire in this earthly world. But we read in the New Testament that that the day of reckoning is coming, don't we? The wicked won't always prosper. God's people will not always seem to be on the short end of the stick. The Apostle John saw it like this in Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15. The day of reckoning. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The Lord Jesus described it this way in Matthew 13, 41-43. He said, The Son of Man will send forth His angels, 
And they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. You say to God, why aren't the righteous shining forth as the sun? Why are the wicked prospering? And God's answer is it won't always be this way. There will come a day of judgment. And then in that day, the righteous will shine forth as the sun. The wicked seem to have the upper hand now, but God says the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Evil will not always have the upper hand. The wicked will eventually reap what they have sown. And God will not sit silently forever while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they. That's the main answer to to Habakkuk's question. However, I want you to see that there's a second answer. It's not directly spoken in the book of Habakkuk, but it may be discerned from the rest of the Scripture if we're listening carefully to what Habakkuk says. So God's first answer is, why do the wicked prosper? It's not always going to be this way. Don't think that I've forgotten my people. Don't think that I've forgotten justice. But what else might God say in response to the question, why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? I think the second answer that we might hear him say this morning to us is something like this. Are you sure you're more righteous than they? Are you sure you are more righteous than they? I don't think Habakkuk's question in verse 13 was asked arrogantly. I don't think when he said, why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they, that he was shaking his fist in God's face. We've said that already. But if you know your Bible and you hear Habakkuk ask that question, something should be going off in your head. Something should be happening in your mind. You should be hearing the rest of the Bible saying to Habakkuk, though God doesn't say it here, Habakkuk, are you sure that you're more righteous than they? Yes, I've heard your complaints, but are you sure you want to make that claim? I heard you describe the Chaldeans and their violence and their wickedness and their injustice and their idolatry. All those things are true. But Habakkuk, aren't those the same indictments that you just finished making about my people in verses 3 and 4? Didn't you just accuse my people of violence and wickedness and injustice and idolatry? You did, didn't you? Are you sure, Habakkuk, that my people are really more righteous than those in the world? And maybe you can hear God specifically Speaking forward in time and giving Habakkuk something like Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgments. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Habakkuk is calling the people of God more righteous than the Chaldeans, but the evidence in Habakkuk chapter 1 seems to say that they're just about the same. And the point here this morning is this. We need to be very careful about calling ourselves more righteous than the unbelievers around us. Because on the whole, sometimes the facts reveal that the people of God are a great deal more like the world than we care to admit. And we saw that last week. But let's just assume for a moment, I hope not without warrant, that there really is a difference between us and our neighbors who don't believe. Let's say there really is a difference. Even if that is true, do we really want to walk around claiming to be more righteous than they? 
Didn't Paul say in Romans 3.10 that there's none righteous? No, not one. And didn't he teach us in Ephesians 2.8 that we're saved not by works, not by our own righteousness, but by grace, through Christ? And didn't he teach us in Philippians chapter 2 that any righteous behavior that we actually do achieve is not us, but is God at work in us? Philippians 2.13. So who are we to run around talking about whom we are more righteous than? We don't have a leg to stand on. Some of us need to hear that well this morning. Because some of us, religious people, are very good at pointing out all the things that are wrong with the world around us. And to hear the way that some of us talk about our co-workers, or about our family, or about the homosexual community, or about the politicians, or about kids these days, or about whoever it may be, to hear the way some of us talk, you would almost begin to think that we actually believe that we're better than them. And that we deserve God's blessings. And in point of fact... Maybe some of us, without even realizing it, do think that way about ourselves. If we think that way, God has news for us this morning. It's found in Isaiah 64, 6, and it is this. All your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Who are we to say that we're more righteous than anybody? And if God were to judge us, as he did the Judeans, could it just be that God uses the wicked to judge us and give us exactly what we deserve? I mean, we actually deserve death and hell, don't we? Now again, I don't believe Habakkuk was speaking arrogantly. I think he was simply reminding God of the fact that there, there is a difference. There should be a difference between the children of God and the children of the devil, even if sometimes it's a very small difference. But based on what we know from the rest of the Bible, it might have been a little bit misguided to try to use that as leverage in his prayer request. I don't think that that's how we typically want to pray. God bless us because we're more righteous than... That's not how we want to pray, is it? Rather, we want to come to God with the attitude of the tax collector at the wailing wall. Lord, if you send judgment upon me, upon us, we will deserve every ounce of it. However, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Isn't that the way we want to come to God? I think that's the second biblical answer that we need to hear this morning. Are we sure that we're really more righteous than the people around us who seem to get all the breaks? In point of fact, we're not. The only difference between us and an unbeliever is the grace of God offered to us in Christ. And we need to remind ourselves of that constantly. I do. And so I know that you do as well. So that's the second answer that we might hear to this question. Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? But I want you to see, finally, that this still leaves part of Habakkuk's question and our question unanswered. We understand, yes, that evil will not always win. Things will not always be this way. And we're thankful for that. And we're reminded, yes, that God does not bless us on account of our own righteousness. And we should be thankful for that too or there would be no blessings for us. But neither we nor Habakkuk have yet gotten an answer to the question of why it is that God allows evil in the first place. And why it is that he chooses to make mankind's wickedness part of his plans as he so clearly did in Habakkuk chapter 1. Why does God allow evil? Why does God use evil? As part of his plans. So that brings us to the third answer this morning. What is the answer to those questions? 
Why does God allow evil? And why does he use evil as part of his plan? What's the answer? The answer in the book of Habakkuk is silence. Silence. After God finishes telling Habakkuk that he's going to judge the Chaldeans, that evil will not always win, he doesn't say anything more the rest of the book. He's done at the end of chapter 2. So it leaves us somewhat like a mob of reporters at a press conference. You know, the president has come in. He's answered a few questions. He's said everything that he intends to say, and he leaves the press conference. And all the reporters are there with their notebook in one hand and their hand up, their other hand up in the sky, their pen in their hand, and a dozen questions that they didn't get to ask or didn't get answers for. We may feel like that this morning. Habakkuk may have felt like that. Because God never explains in this book why He, a good God, allows evil. And He never explains how it is that He, the Holy One, whose eyes are too pure to approve evil, can use the evil of the Chaldeans for His own purposes. Now you can go on in the rest of the Bible and begin to to discern a little bit more of an answer. There's a little bit more light to be seen in the rest of the Bible. But it's as though God is saying here, in response to this question, why do you allow evil? Why do you use evil for your plans? It's as though his response is something like this. I am God. I'm God. I will condescend. I'm glad to condescend to listen to your questions. I'm more than happy to offer you the answers that I deem to be helpful. I certainly want to come and comfort you when you're in distress, but I'm God. I'm not obligated to tell you everything. I give an account only to myself. I think that's what we're left with in Habakkuk. Are you content with that answer? That God is God? Habakkuk, as we'll see in chapter 3, was content to let God be God and to let some of his questions be unanswered. Habakkuk's contentment is a reminder to us that we don't necessarily need all the answers, nor is God obligated to give them to us. And the fact that God sometimes leaves us without the answers is actually for our best interest. Because when God leaves us without the answers, it's a reminder that we are not God. And that's good for us, isn't it? When we remember that we're not God, when we come to an end of ourselves, it's then that we remember and realize that God is God. And that's the place of greatest peace, isn't it? To be able to say, God is God. God is in the heavens and He knows what He is doing, even though I do not. And I haven't seen it very clearly yet, but I'm coming to see that God's silence in the face of some of life's most difficult questions is His way of saying, I'm God, and you're just going to have to trust me. Why do I use the Chaldeans to judge you? How can this happen? How can this be? You're just going to have to trust me. Habakkuk. And obey. Are you content with that? I hope that you are. But if you're struggling, let me just do one last bit of persuading. God may not always tell us everything we want to know. Sometimes His ways are beyond searching out. But we can live with a whole host of unanswered questions, if we can remember that God has given us the one great answer that we so desperately need when we're walking underneath the dark cloud of the question, why? What has God told us? When we don't know the answers, why? 
And he's not going to give us all the answers of why. What has he told us? He's told us this in Romans 8. We know that God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. We know that much, don't we? So, suppose you ask God why he is allowing the wicked to prosper. And he doesn't give you a specific answer. At least you know that God is working everything together for the good of his people. Suppose you ask God why the cancer won't go away. And he doesn't give you an answer. At least you know that he's working everything together for the good of his people. Suppose you hear the Son of God cry out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's no answer. There's no answer in the gospel to that question. God remains silent when Jesus asks him the question in the darkest hour. At least we know, and Jesus knew, that God was working even the darkest moments for the good of his people. So we end this morning where we began, at the cross of Jesus, where the deafening silence of an unanswered question did not mean that God had forgotten his people, but that God's plan was better than we could have imagined even if he had spoken. Who could have imagined on that overcast Friday morning all the good that would come to God's people because the wicked swallowed up one more righteous than they? God was working our forgiveness and our everlasting life with every clank of iron against iron as those wicked men drove nails into one more righteous than they. So it's true, isn't it, that God causes all things, even the triumphs of the wicked, whether they're the Chaldeans or the Roman soldiers or ourselves, God causes all things to work together for the good of his people. So the cross is the final answer to Habakkuk's questions because there at the cross is God's greatest call to trust him even when evil seems to be winning the day. Do you believe in the power of the cross? If you do, then you can live and you can trust God even in the darkness of a whole host of unanswered questions. Father, we pray that you would help us to believe in the power of this cross, the power of your Son, to take what is most wicked and turn it for our good. We see that today in the Lord's Supper as our hearts um, remember our sin and hate it and yet see the grace of Christ all in these two symbols. Remind us, Father, when we don't have answers, when the wicked seem to be winning the day, when everything seems to be going down the tubes and it seems that all the people that are getting all the blessings are those who don't love you. Remind us, Father, that it won't always be this way. Remind us, Father, that we're no more righteous than they, and if we really got what we deserved, we wouldn't want it. And remind us, Father, most of all, that we don't know all the answers, that you are God and not we. You made us and not we ourselves. 
but that we can live in the midst of the questions. We can live in the eye of the hurricane because we know that you're working our good and because Christ proved it at the cross. So give us faith today in your wisdom and in your Son. And we pray in his name. Amen.